Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conversations podcast, where we're positively obsessed with behavior. Join us each week as we discuss case studies, explore training concepts, and interview experts in the field of behavior. Today's episode includes myself, Ursa Acri, co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training, and I'm joined by my co-host, who I'll let introduce herself. Hi, guys. It's Kayla here from Journey Dog Training. You guys can find me on YouTube and Instagram and all that fun stuff under Journey Dog Training or Collie Without Borders. So we actually have some really exciting news. You can now support our podcast through Patreon for as little as $3 a month. So patrons can submit questions, which we'll answer at the end of each episode. You can join our conversation over at patreon.com slash canine convos. In today's episode, we're going to do a case study. Our case study is going to focus on a dog named Madge, who Kayla worked with. And we're just going to kind of dive into the details of um, Madge's background, what the presenting issues were, and how Kayla worked through this treatment plan with her new owners. So um, I'm super excited to hear about Madge. Um, not, I don't want to spoil her anything, but I know the outcome. So um, interested to hear the backstory. So uh, we're going to dive right in. Kayla, do you want to give us um, sort of the, the main details about Madge and her case? Yeah, absolutely. So Madge was a roughly one-year-old spayed female mixed breed dog. She was probably about 20 to 25 pounds. Um, if I had to guess, I would say she might be like a Whippet Jack Russell mix. Um, she's really, really cute. She's got kind of a long sight houndy face with the folding ears. Um, and she's mostly white, but with like big blue cow spotches. So like that kind of slate blue gray. Mm -hmm. Um and then there were times where, like, her face would just look super Jack Russell-y. Um, <laughs> uh, that's the only way I could say it. She's got really long legs. She was actually pretty chunky when I got her. Um, so she didn't look as sight-houndy as she does now. Um, but, yeah, just, I mean, we don't really know. Um, and Madge was actually a foster dog that I had for most of the month of April. Um, so... Basically, what happened was um, the shelter here in Missoula, so the Humane Society of Western Montana, um, got a transfer in from another shelter. Um, and I can't remember whether it was from another shelter in Montana or a shelter from further south. And just about everything is south of Montana, so that doesn't narrow it down <laughs> much. Um, she had an unknown history previous to showing up at the shelter. Really, um, no detail at all. Um, I don't know. At some point, she could have come from a hoarding case or a pet, you know, a, a puppy mill or something. But, like, it, those records must have been lost along the way or something. Um, mm. So, no idea, really, um, what her history was. And she came in as one of the most fearful dogs I've ever um Maybe not ever seen, but definitely the most fearful dog I've ever worked with on this level of intensity. Um, she wouldn't come out of her crate. Um, you couldn't leash her. You couldn't put a collar on her. Forget trying to touch her or getting her to eat out of your hand. Um, yeah, really pretty stationary, kind of just shaking all the time. And she was medicated um, pretty much right away. Um, and I believe... Oh, gosh. I'm not going to remember which meds or the dosages, but she was medicated um, basically as soon as she arrived at Humane Society of Western Montana. They're really good about getting dogs like her onto, onto medication um, regimens. Uh, so, yeah, and I, I brought her home in early April. Awesome. So did the shelter contact you about her? Were you already there when she came in? 
Yeah, so I had been volunteering at the shelter pretty intensively ever since I moved to Montana. I was going every Sunday and doing a couple hours with their behavior team. Um, and oh my gosh, it was just so fun. But um, <laughs> as COVID um, came around, I was no longer able to, they were, they asked all the volunteers to stay home. Um, which yeah. makes sense. So I reached out to them and was like, hey, I still really want to get involved. And all of my travel has been canceled for the foreseeable future because of this pandemic. Um, do you guys have any dogs that need fostering and particularly like any really behaviorally challenging dogs who are really going to benefit? And um, Tiff, who's the behavior manager here and I are our friends and she was like, yeah, you know, actually there is this dog. Um, her name is Madge. We don't really know much about her. She's incredibly fearful. We honestly don't know if she's going to be an adoption candidate. Euthanasia might be on the table for her. Um, mm -hmm. But let's talk, you know, you can go ahead and bring her home if, if you're comfortable with all those caveats. Yeah. So uh, what were your initial thoughts about the situation? Did you feel like Prognosis good, prognosis poor, not sure. So to be totally honest, I wasn't too, too worried for the first couple days or weeks with Madge. Um, I have worked with a fair number of dogs like her in the shelter environment. Um, and I expected her to make slow progress, but um, wasn't feeling too, too worried about everything, you know there's always a chance that it's not going to work out with these cases. But the nice thing is given the level of fear that she was presenting was it was, you know, there's welfare concerns with a dog who's that fearful, but given her size and um, kind of the, the general parameters of her case, I wasn't super worried about it being like a, a time sensitive issue. Um, mm -hmm. And most, I, I feel like most of the dogs that I've seen that are um, this under socialized, given enough time, most of them do eventually get better. Um, mm -hmm. I will say though, after the first like three ish weeks, I started getting a lot more beaten down about Madge and just really, really worried about her. Um, she did not, if I'm being honest, she didn't make the progress I was hoping for or expecting in my home. Um, you know, as I said, I had really low expectations at first um, as far as what I wanted her to be doing, um, but I was hopeful that giving her all that time and space was going to um, help her blossom. And to be totally honest, I had her for about six weeks, and I don't think I ever really petted her. I never really um, had any good affiliative interactions with her at all, and that um, – was really concerning to me, um, as well as concerning to the shelter. So, you know, jumping ahead a little bit, um, we actually did ultimately decide to send Madge back to the shelter um, at around that six-week point to get her in with some social dogs because she just wasn't mm. really making the progress we had hoped to see in in the home. Um, it's interesting that you say that because um, it reminds me of um, one of my dogs, Mina, who uh, passed away about almost two years ago now, but she was a little um, German Shepherd who I picked up when I was at the Kentucky Humane Society that sounds a lot like Madge, like uh, purely just, uh, I believe, under-socialized, picked up in rural Kentucky and like terrified of people, mm -hmm. absolutely terrified. And she was not aggressive at all, but she was, I mean, mortified of any person in her in her proximity and I brought her home and it was, I was a relatively new trainer. I think I had been training for a few years and I was brand new to the shelter and the more severe behavior issues. And I, I remember it taking 
six months for her to warm up to me. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I think I didn't know enough to realize how long that was. <laughs> yeah. like my expectations were, you know, I think now I, I would feel the same way as you did, like, oh, six weeks in and I'm not seeing anything and this is concerning. And at the time I was kind of like, well, it's a slow process. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I was part of, you know, when I started getting really, um, really struggling with Madge was actually because she started showing some other behavior issues, which we'll talk about more. But, um, you know, the fear yeah. and the under socialization, I felt like I could live with where it's like, okay, yeah, I can have a dog who's a house plant. That's just fine. Right. Um, <laughs> And I'm totally happy to foster that and whatever. But she started um, barking and screaming incessantly when I left her alone. Um, Oh, gosh. And then also didn't really show any ability of behavior when I was around. And then was also breaking out of her X-Pen pretty consistently. And she was not house trained. And I couldn't get her on leash to take her outside. Um, So it was just kind of this, like, compounding series of issues or concerns um, that started getting, that was when I started really worrying about her more because it's one thing to have a dog that's essentially a houseplant behaviorally. It's another thing to be like, so here's this dog. Um, You can't touch it. You can't walk it. You can't play with it. And it's going to scream whenever you leave it alone. And it's not potty trained. Um, So, you know, that's where the shelter and I were both really starting to get concerned about what her prognosis was going to look like. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's tough. And it's a lot. That's so overwhelming. And I I mean, I consider you much more well equipped than, you know, the average person to deal with those behavior issues, because you understand how to how to help and change the behavior. And, but even still, that is so overwhelming. Oh, my God. To deal with issues of that magnitude and number. Yeah, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so did you do anything beforehand to prepare? We're kind of taking a step back. Did you do anything beforehand to prepare for bringing her home? You yeah. Know, I know, you know, you've got barley and at the time I think you were living in the apartment that you're in now, correct? Or yep. a similar situation? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in a third floor studio apartment, so it's pretty tiny. Yeah. Uh, I think it's about 430 square feet. Um, and uh, yeah, so when I decided to bring Madge home, um, let's see, we went to a, I don't remember whether it was Home Depot or Lowe's, but we got um, these garage floor liners that are kind of like these mats that you can put down. We got a couple of those so that I could put down a potty pad friendly area in my, um, basically in my living room. And then we got some x from the shelter. We got a crate, we got the potty pads. Um, and the ba- the basic idea was that I wanted to set up a area for her where she couldn't escape. I wasn't going to go in um, and we could kind of build that understanding between the two of us that like, hey, I'm not going to come in here and bother you. And mm-hmm. and um, and also basically just keeping my floors safe. So I think the biggest thing that I did that was really helpful was getting the that matting down so that I wasn't going to be stressed about the fact that I'm renting and I was having a dog who was, you know, I wasn't even trying to consider putting a leash on her to take her outside to work on potty training. Um, like right. that, that was just so many steps ahead of where she was ready to be, which I think is something important to note for dogs like this. A lot of my clients who talk to me about dogs like Madge, um, I think they're taking a lot of steps backwards because they're trying to push potty training. 
when is just so not ready to be leashed or taken outdoors. Um, And that's really hard. I mean, especially if you rent, but really for anyone, like no one wants their dog to be uh, pooping in their house, especially if it's a decent sized dog. It, yeah, it wasn't fun. fun. No. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think you bring up an important point. So not just for dogs like Madge who are really scared, but like the transition process from shelter to home is scary and stressful for even well-adjusted dogs. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, I talk to a lot of clients that want to come in really hot and it's like, oh, I just, you know, got my dog yesterday and I want to take them to the dog park or I want to introduce them to my family's dogs or whatever. When like, I really feel like giving the dog a space and some time to decompress is super beneficial. Um, and just kind of like less is more that first week or so that they're home, you know, give them a space where they can go and, and kind of be unbothered and just let them settle into their new place and, and start to learn the routines and that they can trust people and whatever. But even more crucially important for a dog like Madge, who is obviously starting, you know, mm-hmm. with not a full deck in terms of socialization experiences. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even talk so. about this in our puppy raising episode um, a while back where, you know, doing similar things even with puppies from breeders. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fine line with puppies between you know, you want to you want to take full advantage of that socialization period, but mm-hmm. not overwhelming them. So, you know, giving right. even even you know puppies, giving them a nice quiet space that is kind of theirs, and then obviously doing your socialization outings. Yeah, yeah, but taking it easy on them, you know. Yeah, yeah. yeah, giving um, them their okay. own yeah. So, what were the first like hours and days like with Madge before you yeah. even kind of started working on things? The first couple hours and days, pretty much all we did was I put Madge's crate down in in her in her room in her area, um, <laughs> opened the door and set out um, a thing of string cheese nearby. And every time I walked past, I ripped off a bit of string cheese and just dropped it in there. And that's really pretty much all we did for the first couple days. It's just like, mm-hmm. hey, whenever I go by, I did have to go in and clean up her potty pads. Um, a couple times a day so there was and that was always really stressful for her um Mm -hmm. she was not a fan of that at all um and I just tried to do it as quickly and inobtrusively as possible um and I let her hide in the crate while that was happening um (laughs) and then as we kind of went forward from the first week or so I think it was kind of like every five days or so I would like try to take one more step. So we removed the top of her crate after about five days. So she still had the ha- the walls and she had her bed inside, but she didn't have um, the full top of the crate anymore after about five days. Um, and in retrospect, I think that might've been a little bit too fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we did the same thing where, so she had a bed with pretty high walls and we did eventually remove the bottom of the crate as well, but she still had the high bed. Um, And then we were doing a lot of, I would feed her and then kind of sit like 10 feet away with my back to her or 15 feet away with my back to her. Um, And for those first couple of days, she wouldn't eat with me in the room at all. I would have to be like in the, in the bathroom, taking a shower or in the kitchen where she couldn't see me because it is obviously a studio. So everything is kind of the same room. Um, Right. (laughs) uh, And and I did a whole YouTube like video um, series on Madge and you can actually see in those kind of the, the full setup, but um, 
if I'm in the kitchen, she can't really see me and felt a lot safer. So for the first week or so, I don't think she really ate with me in the room. And then we kind of just started building up to, um, I would just try to hang out somewhere far enough away and inobtrusively enough that she would eat. Um, but trying to, to push that <laughs> a little bit. Um, so that's honestly the first couple of weeks were pretty much that, um, and then we did start trying to move up towards hand feeding and hand targeting and some other, um, you know, more advanced things as, as we went on. But I don't think that came in until about week two or three. It's hard to coexist with a dog that's terrified of you when you don't have that much space to get away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, it's, it's one of those where there's, it's hard to not be, not push them over a threshold. So. Yeah, when uh, when I brought Mina home, she sort of lived in our spare bathroom, which I was lucky to have kind of like a little half bath at the time. And that was her place where I could go and kind of like shut her in and just let her not be triggered by things. Um, but yeah, even then it was tough because you have to care for the dog and interact with them in some ways. So yeah. You just try to try to do as little as possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, exactly. It's I would love to continue fostering more dogs like her in the future, but I actually don't think, you know, my skill level is kind of canceled out by my living situation right now. I think for a lot of dogs like this, um, you know, it obviously worked out for Madge, but it was so hard on mm-hmm. both of us really um, in such a tiny space. Um, well, yeah. just that potty situation alone is tough where you don't have a way to just kind of let them in and out of a yard to go to the bathroom. Like that's so tough. Yeah. Yeah. Or having a big enough space where, you know, I think, um, I, I don't know if they had this when you were at dumb friends, League, the shelter that we both used to work for, but they had, um, like a decompression room that we would use for cats down in Mm -hmm. the basement. That was like a full, I mean, it must've been like a close to 400 square foot room. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and you could put cats in there that had really, really big feelings, whether they were extremely fearful or (laughs) Or more on the overstimulated end of things where they would, you know, bite when, when you pet them. And I just think like, man, if I had a room like that where I could like go in and like go clean up the potty pads on one end while the dog felt okay on the other end, it just would have been, I think our progress would have been much quicker versus it's just kind of like I had to walk, you know, within a foot of her X-Pen every time I went into my, uh, my closet, because that was just, it was the only way that you could possibly set it up. And that was, that was scary for her. Yeah. So house goals are a decompression room for fearful foster dogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One day. <laughs> I don't I like know, it. I don't know for when that's going to happen, but <laughs> I like it. a long way to go between, between my <laughs> apartment and having a spare room just for foster dogs. Oh, I feel you. <laughs> All right. Well, so um, let's dive in a little bit uh, to your treatment plan. So let's talk about, um, first of all, what was your plan from the beginning? And then we can talk a little bit about how it went, if it, you know, sort of went with your expectations or what changed. So what did you start with? Yeah. So I think my basic plan um, was to do what I said I did as far as getting her um, a little bit more situated into the home. Um helping her feel as comfortable as possible. And then just working on a lot of uh, teaching her that I meant good things, teaching her I meant food, teaching her that I was the bringer of good things. So that's where all the, you know, every time I walked past, I dropped some string cheese or some hot dog and um, trying to hang out while she was eating. Um, And then I wanted to work on moving up towards hand targets and hand feeding 
um, eventually leashing her, taking her outside, and hopefully moving towards actually petting her. Um, so some of the the exercises we built in there is she was actually a quite playful little dog. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think I visibly saw her play until, uh, gosh, I probably had her for three weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but was able to start. She had those little tiny squirrels, you know, that come in the in the log. The tree thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they're very yeah. popular. Um, so I tied a couple of those to strings and tied those to sticks so that I could kind of play with her from a distance. That was a little bit later on, um, but that was one of the things we did. And then we did a lot of, um, you know, I would put my hand out, click, and then toss food at her for her looking at my hand. Um, and then I would toss the food behind her so that she had to turn back and look at me again. And then I could click and treat for her to look back at me. Um, Mm -hmm. and that's, so that's basically treat and retreat. Um, and we would kind of work on, um, you know, she'd look at me, I'd click and treat, she'd go and eat the food. She'd turn back to me and take a couple steps towards me. And then I'd click. Um, and Mm -hmm. we built up to her actually being pretty consistent about she, if I was sitting on the ground, she would come up and touch my toes or touch my finger. Um, and eventually we moved her into the kitchen instead of in her little room and kind of like gated off the kitchen area from the rest of the apartment. Um, and she would follow you around. She was, she would beg for food. She'd kind of touch the backs of your legs and sniff up and down them. Um, relatively and like, I think a lot of this was happening around kind of the three or four week mark. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I had like really detailed records of like, and then on day 14, like this happened. <laughs> I, I don't have those. Unfortunately. Um, and uh, gosh, and then we did start working on um, having her target and eat through a slip lead so that we could get her outside. Um, I think I only took her outside three or four times over the whole six weeks I had her, but I did see that, um, she seemed to relax outside. She was very, she, she was quite sniffy, which can, can definitely be a displacement behavior, but she, um, it seemed much more kind of curiosity. Her tail would go up. She would wag. She tried to solicit play from Barley with some frequency. And he, um, honestly was a pretty useless helper dog for I was going to um, ask how Barley felt about this whole situation i figured when you said that you were playing with madge with sticks that barley was probably over there in the corner fuming (laughs) (laughs) overall barley didn't mind her um i think he'd rather i take home fearful dogs than really um high Mm -hmm. rock dogs Mm -hmm. um but uh yeah he was he was not super helpful as far as soliciting play from her or getting her to warm up Mm -hmm. that way um So, yeah, I mean, we had kind of a lot of different exercises that we were just kind of always doing. And basically, anytime we were in her space um, or nearby, we were dropping food. Um, And she was pretty highly food motivated, which was really nice. Yeah. Yeah. So she was really comfortable with other dogs, it sounds like, but just not with people. Yeah. Yeah. Which seems relatively typical for a lot of Mm-hmm. A lot of under-socialized dogs from the places where we tend to get a lot of under-socialized dogs. Like, obviously, under-socialized dogs can just be under-socialized, period, with other dogs as well. But in my experience in sheltering, it seems like a lot of the under-socialized dogs we get come from puppy mills or hoarding mm-hmm. cases 
where they do tend to be really socially savvy with other dogs and actually much, much more comfortable with other dogs. Um, and I generally mm-hmm. recommend that dogs like this go home with another dog in the home. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even, I just was talking to a client two days ago who has a dog very similar to this where I was like, I'm not saying that we have to do this right now, but I do think it might be on the table that getting a second dog is going to be really, really helpful for your first dog. You know, we don't have to do that right now. That's a huge discussion. <laughs> like decision. Yeah. Yeah. For, you know, for, these are some of those dogs where I think that's actually helpful, you know? Mm-hmm. Mina was the same way. In fact, I think one of the keys, crucial keys to her coming out of her shell was the fact that I had two other dogs at the time. Um, and uh, Nico, especially when I brought Nico home, they really bonded. Well, she bonded with him. He, he liked her, but he wasn't dependent on her. Um, but I, we joked that she, he was her emotional support animal because she would be much more comfortable when he was around or in general when there was another dog around. But I see that a lot, too. And with a lot of my clients, one in particular I can remember um, was this Border Collie mix that was um, rescued from... I want to say Bosnia. It was a street dog and okay. was just classic under socialized, like terrified of people and new things and sounds and, you know, you name it and like furniture and stairs. And I, I don't think this dog had ever been inside a home, but was friendly with other dogs. And so I was kind of, I kind of had the same discussion of like, you don't have to do this. And I know it's, you know, you, it's not a decision you should make lightly bringing home a second dog, but usually what I'll encourage my clients to do is like borrow a friend's dog for a mm-hmm. day and, and give it a test drive or a weekend, like have the dog over for a sleepover and see if it has a net positive effect on the fearful dog. Um, because that can be a, a relatively easy way <laughs> to help the, the fearful dog make a lot of progress. So, um, and I think, and you can, you know, agree or disagree but I think even uh, a lot of the time even if it's not an affiliative dog so like Barley sounds like wasn't interested in playing with Madge but I'm guessing that just having another dog around was probably comforting to her even if it wasn't a dog that really wanted to engage with her a ton yeah I I would suspect so although um as a as a minor spoiler she ended up in a home with other dogs that are very playful and very affiliated with her and that seemed to make a really big difference that's awesome. That's good. Yeah. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So how did your plan for treatment end up going? How, how was it different than, than what you planned? Or- yeah, I think overall, um, the fearfulness stuff was going relatively well, aside from, as I said, you know, then we started seeing some of these other setbacks. Um, as far as her barking and screaming when left alone. Um, And I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, it didn't matter if we left Barley with her, Mm. which I thought was odd. Um, Mm -hmm. Because at first I thought that it was Barley um, leaving. That was actually the issue. Um, So um, yeah, let's see. She, she was improving on most of the metrics. You know, she was following us around relatively well. She was targeting to our fingers pretty well. Um, but we were having some other setbacks as well that were really challenging. So one of the things I didn't anticipate, um, particularly once we moved her into the kitchen, is she became quite the little door darter. 
Um, <laughs> so she escaped from our apartment a couple times, um, which was just terrifying. Um, yeah. Because if she were to make it outside of this building, um, I don't think there's any chance I would get her back. And every time she door darted, which I think only happened three or four times um, over the course of six weeks, you know, I had to get a slip lead and I had to lasso her. And, you know, most of the times that happened, she was so frightened that she actually would like alligator roll and defecate on leash. Um, So that was where I started feeling like, okay, we, like, I don't think I'm a foster home that's helpful for her. You know, I got her through those first couple weeks of the treat and retreat and the hand targets and, like, the really, really basic stuff. And once she Mm -hmm. started gaining more confidence to where she was comfortable darting between your legs and trying to escape the apartment, um, Mm -hmm. I felt like that... I, I wasn't able to figure out a way to prevent that from happening. Um, you know, I had a baby gate up that worked to keep her from going out if it was just me going out. But if Barley needed to go out and I therefore needed to move the baby gate, um, you know, we started coming up with these elaborate systems of using the baby gate to get her into the crate, closing the crate, getting yeah. Barley out. Um, but obviously our management was failing there. So I think that was actually kind of the straw that broke the camel's back as far as the shelter and I agreeing that it was time for Madge to go back to the shelter. Um, mm-hmm. And um, Did you have yeah. concerns about sending her back into the shelter environment about either losing progress or, you know, yeah. overwhelming her in that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I talked to the shelter about, you know, the fact that like, hey, I just really need a break right now from her. Um, and, you know, maybe we can reassess, come up with a new plan. And I'm happy to take her back. Like, please let me know if she has any like big setbacks um, in the shelter. Um, and, you know, again, we always, we also knew that euthanasia might be on the table for her just because her quality of life and adoption prospects were so low. Um, So it wasn't that, you know, I was going to, I wouldn't accept it if that was the decision they made. It was more just, you know, if we still thought that adoption was an option. Um, And I was concerned about that, but she actually ended up getting paired with another, another dog who was quite fearful, but not quite as fearful as her. They played really well together um, and did pretty well together. And I don't think she was actually in the shelter all that long before she ended up getting adopted. That's amazing. Um, And I was a little surprised she went available, you know, went up for adoption so quickly. Um, That's just a difference between the shelter that I worked for and the shelter here in Missoula, um, Mm -hmm. where I think the Dumb Friends League generally didn't adopt, put dogs up for adoption if they were still pretty heavily involved in behavior modification. This shelter has a lot more post-adoption support. So they mm-hmm. will actually adopt dogs out that are less far into their treatment plans and not, you know, mm-hmm. done. Um, not that you're right. done, um, but you sure. know, that's just a difference. I didn't expect her to be put up for adoption and I really didn't expect her to get adopted so quickly. Um, but it ended up kind of all working out really, really well um, because I don't know if she would have done well with a long-term sheltering situation. Um mm-hmm. And I don't know if her coming back into my home would have been all that helpful either. Again, given the door darting issue in particular was 
just something that was really, really challenging to deal with in my home. Um, and it just felt like every time it happened, we were taking 10 steps backwards in all the progress and, you know, massively undermining her trust. And I was being really hard on myself about how all of that was going. Um, it was also, you know, kind of like peak quarantine pandemic stuff. So oh my gosh. Like stress <laughs> going on. I don't know why. I mean, I know why I agreed to take her on at that point, but like in retrospect, it was so much dealing with all at once. Well, I want to ask you something, and then um, while you're sort of thinking about the answer, we'll listen to a quick message from a sponsor. But um, I want to I want to ask if there were any um, things that uh, either skills that you helped her learn, or um, any conditioning that you did or that took place while you had her that you think carried over and helped her in her new home. So. Um, yeah. We're going to take a quick break, hear from a sponsor, and then we'll be back to hear Kayla's answer. Hi, guys. I'm dropping into this episode to tell you about my puppy training class. I worked super hard to create this online video puppy training class that covers everything from potty training and chewing and nupping and other, you know, kind of normal puppy problems to basic socialization and some obedience, you know, sit, stay down, all of that normal stuff. So if you've got a new puppy or you know someone who's got a new puppy, this course is a really great place to get started, especially if you're on a wait list for a puppy, puppy kindergarten class, you can't get into a puppy kindergarten class, or just want something to get started on right away while your puppy is finishing up their vaccinations because it's all online. So you can find it under the courses tab on journeydogtraining.com. Hey guys, I wanted to pop into this episode to tell you a little bit about one of my courses. Earlier this year, I helped Kate out of mine put together a comprehensive video course on what 30 skills I think are most important to start teaching your dog right away. This course covers everything from nail trims to settling on a mat, and it's all in digestible short videos with quizzes to help you track your learning. You can find it under the courses tab on journeydogtraining.com, and if you use the code journeydog, all one word, you'll get 50% off the course. All right, we are back, and we're talking with Kayla about Madge. Um, we're doing a case study on a dog that she fostered and helped do some behavior modification with um, through a shelter in her town, and then later went on, um, the dog later went on to get adopted. So what I asked Kayla was, were there any skills that Madge learned or conditioning that took place with Kayla that she thinks carried into her new home and maybe helped her while she was there. So what do you think? Yeah, gosh, I sure hope so. I hope that six weeks <laughs> didn't just leave her at the same place as she was beforehand. Right. <laughs> uh, but having had the chance to talk to her new owners, have you gotten any feedback on any of that stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So I actually, and we're going to be able to slot that in. So I actually, before we got on the phone, um, before Ursa and I started recording, I actually spoke to Madge's new fast, new family. Um, her name is Ellie now and she's doing really, really well. So we'll, we'll include that at the very end here. Um, but I think a lot of the kind of like the hand targets that we worked on and the the follow me games where kind of anytime she approached me, I produced food. And if I moved away and she moved to follow me again, I produced more food. I think that was probably the most helpful stuff that we did. I did a lot. I spent a fair bit of time with her trying to work on like shaping games or getting her um, to put her nose through the leash, um, like a mm -hmm. slip lead, um, 
I tried to play with her with those toys. And I don't really think any of that made a huge difference for her. Um, I suspect that given more time, uh, they might have. Um, mm-hmm. But just kind of given where where she started with me, um, the, the hand targets and the follow me games were probably most helpful. Um, I will also say that I think, you know, she was quite playful, but she wasn't super playful if that makes sense so i think um for for i've actually got a client again that i was speaking to just a couple days ago who's got a dog similar to her but is a um a wire-haired terrier mix of some sort and is incredibly into squeaky toys and like for him i think those squeaky toys are actually going to be more useful for making a breakthrough versus for match all that treat and retreat was really helpful so yeah. Do you know if the adopters got any post-adoption support that included any parts of your training plan? Yeah, yeah. So Tiff and I um, worked really closely on a lot of Madge's training plan. So again, Tiff is the behavior manager here at the shelter. Um, and I know that they handed up quite a bit of kind of information and what had been done and what had been tried and what worked and what were the issues were um, to Madeline, the new adopter, um, at the time of adoption. Nice. That's awesome. And I don't know whether or not Madeline ended up taking up the option of, because the shelter does generally offer some post-adoption, like private support. Mm -hmm. And I don't know whether Madeline ended up doing that. She is quite dog dog savvy and works at a doggy daycare. So I don't, I don't know whether or not she took that. Cool. Um, So yeah, give us an update on, on Matt, on Ellie now, Ellie. (laughs) Um, What's her outcome? What's her life like now? Yeah, so I'll kind of give it in my words, and then we'll let Maddie, um, Madeline, drop in here with her her full update. But um, so Madge now lives with Madeline. Her name is now Ellie. She lives with two dogs, a Border Collie mix and a Hound mix. Um, and her like absolute best friend is this Hound mix. She really loves both of them. She plays really well. Um, Madeline works at a doggy daycare, so Madge slash Ellie gets to go into doggy daycare, and she apparently is super tenacious and playful, will, like, work to take down Newfoundlands, and (laughs) (laughs) is just incredibly dog social. Um, She does still have some ongoing fearfulness. Um, Madeline said that Madeline was able to start petting Madge, probably starting a couple weeks into having her. Mm-hmm. And then it, but it took about five months before Madge was comfortable with Madeline's boyfriend to handle her. Um, mm-hmm. And likewise, at the doggy daycare, there's a male and a female owner, and Madge will take treats and I think accept some petting from the female owner, but is not there at all with the male owner. Um, and her mm-hmm. her social circle is still pretty small as far as people goes, but she's actually a confident, awfully shiker. Um, and, you know, stays really close. It's really awesome with the other dogs. Um, yeah. And I, again, I think we'll we'll let Madeline take it from here with the full update. But it's really, really great to hear. And, and just, I mean, I can't say enough how, how much better um, it actually turned out than I kind of expected. Yeah. Did, uh, did any of the sort of maybe potential separation anxiety issues that you saw, did any of those translate into her new home? No. So that's interesting. Yeah. I asked Madeline about that and she, she said she crates all of her dogs. And if, um, so Madge slash Ellie gets crated next to the boys, um, and doesn't have any issues. Um, she did say that if the boys are gone and Madge slash Ellie is crated, there will be some whining and barking. 
Um, but mm-hmm. I actually am wondering, I believe that I tried crating her. Um, I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure that I did that at least a couple times and that didn't help. Um, but mm-hmm. I wonder if she was worse when loose. Um, and, and it doesn't sound like she did anything. So I just, I wonder if it's just a change in context. Um, yeah. I, yeah, there, there are honestly a couple things with how it's all turned out with match that I don't know how replicable it is because I just don't quite know what made the difference. Yeah. What the factors were crucial factors. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, take a moment to hear from Madeline a little update on formerly Madge, now Ellie. So, um, Madeline, can you just give us an update on how you found Madge, um, now Ellie, and um, what she was like with you guys at first and then where she's at now? Yeah, totally. So um, I had two old dogs pass away within a week of each other in May of 2020. And I was sort of like... I was sort of like browsing the Humane Society and I was just sort of looking for a third to add to my um, two boys. And um, I, we, I saw a dog on the Humane Society website that was a little like tiny pocket dog thing. (laughs) Um, And we went to meet her and she was awesome and like totally sweet. And I ended up... meeting somebody who I have known for many years and I didn't know she worked at the Humane Society at the time, um, Meg. And Meg and I have known each other since I was like probably 10 years old. Um, So I was able to talk to her and I told her like, hey, is there any dog that you are having trouble adopting or like is a more difficult dog to um, adopt. And she mentioned Madge who now Ellie. Um, and so we ended up meeting her and I remember like, she was just like in her crate at the humane society in like the room. And she basically just looked really petrified and they like, it, it wasn't necessarily like a meet and greet. Like you weren't like petting the dog and seeing that it was a good fit or whatever. We sort of just looked at her in her room in her crate and talked a little bit with Meg about sort of her backstory. And um, they said that they could like, we'd be more than welcome to take her or um, the other dog we went and looked at. And so we got in our car and, were like driving away and ended up making the decision way faster than we had thought. And we were like, okay, we'll just take Madge, like whatever, she'll be fine. Like um, at least she'll like have somewhere to be, even if she never wants to be touched or anything like that. Um, And so we, I called Meg and was like, okay, we'll take Madge. And she was like, okay, well, we have to get a collar on her, which is like a really big deal. So after that happens, we'll let you know and you can come pick her up. And um, so I'm pretty sure we came back the next day and picked her up. Um, And she, honestly, she really was a pretty good, a pretty good dog. Um, we took her home, um, and she spent probably mm, like a week sort of just getting to know 
her routine and sort of where she was in the house and all that stuff. And it didn't take a whole lot of time before um, she was able to realize like my other two dogs really are very people oriented. And um, I think it sort of clicked with her because she really adores her brothers that like we weren't going to hurt her. And um, she for sure prefers me over anybody else. And also she prefers females over males um, for sure. And I would say now, like what we've had her a little over six months. Um, now I would not say that she has like any problems really. Like she, I can cut her nails. I can hike with her off leash. I can pick her up, touch her, pet her, put a collar on her leash on her, like all of that stuff. She doesn't really have any restrictions, I would say. Um, but definitely my boyfriend is not, she's not that way with my boyfriend. Um, she's a little more tentative about like him petting her. She'll absolutely let him pet her, but it's usually if she's sitting in my lap or if she is like, as long as I'm there, she is willing to be touched by other people. But, um, if he like, makes a loud noise in the kitchen or something, she'll run and sit by my legs. Um, so she's definitely, I would say she's def like, I have definitely become her person and she also really, really loves her brothers. And that was like a really good thing for her to have is just two dogs that don't really have any problems right now with people. She definitely is a dog's dog. Like she loves, I work at a doggy daycare and she gets to come to work with me and she loves playing with all the dogs. Um, she's really tough. She'll play with like big 200 pound newfies and she's like tiny. Um, especially in the beginning, she for sure preferred being outside. How is she doing being left alone? Um, Good. I create all my dogs. And mm -hmm. so, um, I, I really like, crate training just because then I know they're safe and nothing's happening to them. And so she goes, she has a, she has her crate and it goes next to uh, my boys get created together in a bigger crate and she goes next to them. And I have a camera in my house so I can listen and watch yeah. them. Um, and she is fine. She's quiet. That's she goes awesome. in her crate really well. Like you open the door and just tell her to kennel up. She goes right in. And um, yeah, she's she's been really quiet. She, if I crate her individually and take the boys out of the house, um, she whines for a couple minutes and quiets down. But she's definitely comfortable in her crate. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that's that's a great update. And honestly, I know I've said this to you in the past, but you've done such an awesome job with her. And um, I truly didn't expect um, it to turn out quite so well for her. So it's awesome to hear and see all that. All right. Well, that is an awesome update. Um, it's so good to hear a story like that with a good outcome when, you know, it was definitely uncertain in the beginning. Um, I do have one last very important question, and that is, uh, how did how did Barley fare through all of this? <laughs> was he sad to see her go, or was it like, yay, life is back to normal? <laughs> yeah, honestly, oh, 
That's a good question. I think he, I don't know if he really cared much either way. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, he probably, I will say he, he is so in tune with my emotions that um, I imagine that the, the stress reduction on my end when Madge left probably was a relief for him. Excuse me. Um, just, just from that alone. But I don't really think that Madge was bothering him uh, to any degree. Uh, it's more just that, you know, as soon as our life was back to normal and I felt more stress, more, more relief. Um, he probably appreciated that. Yeah, definitely. I can see that for sure. All right. Well, anything else you want to add about um, about your case study with Madge before we get no, into our? But if people are questions? interested in um, in following her, her owner um, Madeline has an Instagram and um, said that we can drop it in here. So it's Madeline Kurz K U R Z, and we'll we'll just have that in the show notes if if spelling is a struggle for you. Um, <laughs> And she said she doesn't post a lot of photos, but she will have Madge in her story quite often. So awesome. um, if you're interested, and then we also, I, as I said, I have that whole YouTube um, series on Madge where you can actually really see kind of in real time me training Madge, doing the setups, what Madge actually looked like through it. Um, and um, yeah, cool. I mean... It was, it was a lot of work. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that this taught me was just how much work it takes and giving me a, a lot of empathy for other people going forward um, who are dealing with this because it, it's a lot. Yeah, I think, you know, as a, as a trainer and behavior consultant, for me, it's been really impossible not to have a great deal of empathy for clients because I know how hard it is. And, and I, you know, like you, we know how to develop a treatment plan and how to carry one out and what pitfalls to look for and what to do and what not to do. And if that's not second nature, if it's not your specialty and, and what you do, um, it's so hard and it can be so hard too to see the progress sometimes because like, uh, you know, a lot of the time it's measured in these little minute things that are really difficult to notice and it can feel like you're not making any progress at all. So, or other issues crop up like they did with Madge and that yeah. can be so demoralizing and frustrating. So yeah, I think definitely as a, as a trainer, it's really helpful to kind of think of it in terms of what our clients are experiencing. If we're frustrated and, and you know, feeling discouraged, then, um, you know, we know that that's definitely something that they're feeling a lot of the time. So Cool. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, thanks for sharing that with us. That's a, a great happy ending. I'd love to hear yeah. it. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, so we're going to switch gears just a little bit. We have um, a question from one of our Patreon members. And just as a reminder, you can support us now through Patreon for as little as $3 a month, uh, where you can submit questions that we'll answer at the end of our podcast. And you can sign up uh, at patreon.com slash canine combos. So today we have um, two questions from Amy. She asked if we could talk about teenage dogs. So she mentioned that her beautifully trained 10-month-old dog decided about a month and a half ago that she didn't have a recall anymore. And um, she was really enjoying allowing her dog to be off leash, but now it seems like she's kind of lost the skills that she had before. So... Um, I just want to say right out of the bat, right out of the gate, 
that sounds really, really typical to me. <laughs> yeah. I would say that that is a really, really common experience um, that adolescent dogs, and I don't know, I mean, my sort of anecdotal window for that is usually right around like, I don't know, eight, nine, 10 months. So right around the time that Amy is talking about with her dog, where they kind of start to get teenager brain and, and it seems like they've forgotten everything they've learned. Is that about yeah. the same for you? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's about, I mean, I often, you know, especially when people hire me for puppy stuff and then I get, you know, they, they ask like, okay, you know, how is this going to get better? Or like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. This is going really well. Like either way, it's kind of like, yep. And buckle in. Um, because I, I find that often that like eight to 14 months is often really, really tough um mm -hmm. you know and it, it's vague it for most dogs it's not actually going to be like six months to 24 months it's going to be awful but like for right. most dogs a period of time kind of in there is going to be tough or a couple periods on and off yeah so one of the most one of the most helpful pieces of parenting advice I got and I actually don't even remember where I picked this up which is really sad because it's literally the most helpful thing for me as a parent is everything is a phase. So I have a son who is about to turn six and I heard, I, you know, picked this up. Everything is a phase. Good stuff is a phase, bad stuff is a phase. So whatever phase you're in, don't get too down about it and don't get too cocky about it because it's going to change. And sometimes those phases will last for days and sometimes will last for weeks. And I have found that to be so, so true. And it has gotten me through some really difficult times. And I think that, that advice or that sort of wisdom applies a hundred percent to puppies. Everything mm -hmm. is a phase. So I, I get clients that are like, Oh no, we're finally through, you know, the whatever chewing or the barking or the, you know, didn't want to sleep through the night or whatever. And things are going great. And it's like, don't, don't get too complacent because it's going to change. They're developing yeah. and they're growing and their behaviors are going to change and their habits are going to change. And, the way they interact with their environment is going to change. Um, so, yeah, I think that I, I spend a lot of time explaining that to my, my puppy clients. And I think that holds true with teenagers as well. Um, yeah. you know, and it's a developmental stage that they go through where they're pushing boundaries and they're learning to engage more with their environment and less with mom or dad. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I think it's super, super normal. What advice do you give your clients who have dogs in that phase? I think, I mean, you know, remembering it's likely not going to be forever is helpful. Um, and, you know, just taking taking some spe steps back towards the basics, you know, like the long line and harness, which Amy mentioned in her original question. It's, um, it's frustrating, it's hard, but it should be temporary. Um, keep working on the recall. Um, and, you know, just know that like, you probably won't have to be managing that 30 foot long line forever. I don't, I believe that Amy has a doodle of some sort, but I actually can't remember off the top of my head. Um, and she didn't say specifically in this question. So, and the reason I mentioned that is if her breed is what I think it is, we don't expect genetics to be working against us forever. 
the same way that if this was an adolescent husky or greyhound or some other breeds where we might be like, oh, shoot, yeah, it is pretty typical for them as puppies. You know, puppies are and babies are really easy to teach recall. It's really easy to get them to stick around usually because they're babies. <laughs> you know, they want to be close to you. You are safety. So, you know, just like again, kind of taking it back to teenage people, I'm kind of sure my parents had tons of conversations with their parents or other people about like how independent and awful I, and pushy I was as a teenager and how I didn't ever want to be around them. And I couldn't say, I, I, I couldn't even say I liked them, let alone that I loved them. <laughs> right. um, you know, it's, it's developmentally pretty normal at this age to really, really struggle with a lot of independence. So, you know, get the tools that you need to keep the dog safe. Long line back clip harness are great options. Bell, GPS collar. I use the Garmin Astro. It is expensive, but um, I, I think mine is absolutely worth it. Um, do what you need to do to keep the dog safe. Keep practicing and just know that it is likely to get better. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say the most important thing is just that consistency. So figuring out where your dog can be successful. And that, like you said, might mean taking a few steps back from where you were, which is fine. You know, there's no harm or shame. There's no harm or shame in going back to the basics um, and just, you know, practicing that more. And eventually what's going to happen is when your dog exits that developmental stage where they have this drive to kind of push boundaries and be more independent, all of that training that you've been working so hard at is going to kick back in. Yeah. Um, that's, that's my experience at least. And, you know, you, you made a really valid point with, there are definitely breeds that we have selected for independence for, mm -hmm. you know, decades and generations. And that's going to be, make it a little more of a challenge overall, but the same rules apply consistency, 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 and rigging your dog's environment so that getting them to do what you want them to do is the most reinforcing thing for them. So, yeah. Cool. That was a great question. <laughs> and something yeah, that yeah. so many people are going through and it feels like your world is just coming down. It's like, why did I do all this training for nothing? But it's not for nothing. Yeah, yeah. Like where did my beautifully, where did my beautifully trained puppy go? Yeah. yeah. I think that, you know, the analogy to being a human teenager is a really good one because, you know, I was a pain in the ass teenager too, just like we all were. Yeah. But fortunately, I had, you know, really caring, patient parents who just sort of reiterated the lessons that they wanted me to learn and were kind but firm. And I came out of that on the other side, I hope, you know, a decent human being with skills that I needed to survive in the world. So same with our dogs. We just have to be consistent and and kind, but firm with our boundaries. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, our next question from Amy is um, about your future puppy. So your incoming puppy, um, which is really exciting. And it's, oh uh, it's a puppy. Is it an Aussie or a bossy or a border collie? It's border collie. Okay. Border collie. Um, so you recently drove to visit the litter of puppies to help yes. with um, the temperament testing, right? Yes. Cool. So tell us a little bit about that. And, and Amy specifically wanted to know if we thought that you can actually judge a dog's temperament at that young of an age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so this is the, uh, God, this is, it's such a good question. And it's so like the sort of thing I would love to do a full episode on and maybe we will. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I was, oh God, squeaky toy. <laughs> 
I am lucky enough that the breeder that I am likely going with for my puppy um, only lives about five hours away, which, um, you know, in Montana miles is practically next door. Um, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I drove up last weekend to, to visit the puppies, get to meet. Um, and I was actually lucky enough that I was there at the same time as the sire's owner. So I got okay. to meet both parents as well. Um, and yeah, we did some temperament tests. Um, the short answer is <laughs> most temperament tests don't have a lot of predictive value. Mm -hmm. um, I even like pen vet working dog center and guide dogs for the blind and all of these like big research institutions that are like, it is their entire goal to figure out how to produce dogs for a specific job. And it is in their best interest to figure out which puppies to, to rule in or out of mm -hmm. a given job um, as early as possible so that they can rehome it or move the dog onto a different career path they're better than guessing. <laughs> right. Um, but not by a ton. So I, I'm a little bit of a political junkie and I think that temperament tests and political polling are kind of similar uh -huh. in that like political polling is generally going to be three to five points off of the actual election results. Uh -huh. And unfortunately we can't guarantee which direction it's going to be off. Uh -huh. Um, but it's better than not doing anything. Um, yeah. But whenever an, a, a, a political race is going to be close and polls might be correlated, it could look like a huge error because every poll was five points off in the same direction. Um, and if five points makes the difference, mm -hmm. then all of a sudden the polls are wrong. So, um, and I don't know, that like helps my political wonk brain. It might not help anyone who doesn't listen to politics. Um, but I think temperament tests are going to be similar. So the other caveat with the temperament tests that we were doing is that we were doing them when the puppies are six weeks old and the tests get better as you can see trend lines over time and generally do better. Um, they like to do temperament tests before puppies hit their first fear period, which is usually between kind of seven and 10 weeks. Or there, mm -hmm. I guess there's usually a little bit of a fear period at five weeks and then mm -hmm. another at seven to 10. So that's why we hit six weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, generally it's going to be more predictive the older the puppies are. Um, but you can still see some kind of outliers um, as far as uh, personality or whatnot. Um, so what I was specifically looking for personally, because I do want this puppy to be a detection dog, um, is I was looking for tenacity with problem solving, particularly with scent-based puzzles. Um, and there was one puppy in the litter who stood out really, really far from the litter mates. Um, so that is a puppy that as of right now, unless the next, and she, the breeder's planning on doing temperament testing every week um, mm -hmm. until the puppies go home. So there's a chance that other litter mates might catch up or change personalities. You know, they're one of the puppies that really looked like she was just having a really off day. Like the breeder just kept saying as she was testing her, like, this is not what I expected out of her. This is really odd. She's normally really exploratory. And she was like very fearful throughout most huh. of the, um, most of the test, which is the other thing, you know, you want to combine the temperament tests with what the breeder knows about those puppies. You know, mm -hmm. she just kept saying this, this, the, the puppy Maya, little black and white tri puppy um, in the litter, uh, black, white, and brown, I suppose, um, was just not performing the way that she would have expected. And I, if I was a puppy buyer, I would weight that pretty equally to the actual results of the temperament test. 
Um, mm-hmm. But anyway, the puppy that I am particularly looking at, we did a, pros- a puzzle where we had some food in a tin that was inaccessible, but the puppy could smell it. Um, and we put a couple pieces of kibble in first, then let the puppies go um, for either a minute or whenever they gave up first, um, whichever came first. Mm-hmm. And then with most of the puppies, we then tried again with like a fistful of food. Um, mm-hmm. And the puppy that I am looking at, the puppy I am hoping to bring home, was the only one who went the full minute with just a couple pieces of kibble. Um, and none of the other puppies, even with the full fistful, made it to a full minute of trying to work. Wow. So what I'm hoping <laughs> is that, again, given that like temperament tests are likely to be off in some amount, given how much of an outlier he was on that test, hopefully that result is going to hold true. Whether or not that result has predictive value, I guess we'll just find out in three years. <laughs> right? I know. I know. Um, well, and so what's really interesting is that, you know, like when we're looking at, because puppies are learning all the time, but when we're looking at young, really young puppies of that age, we're looking at a lot of genetic factors mm-hmm. versus learned behaviors because they haven't had much time to learn behaviors. So, right. but those things change so much as they develop, you know, genes, we still don't understand fully how genes affect um, even our, our physiology, much less our behavior. And so those things are going to change so much as the puppies age. And then the learning experiences, experiences of each puppy, even though they're in the exact same environment are going to be so different. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it could literally come down to like one puppy laying in a spot that's colder than the other and learning something from that. Like literally all of their sensory input is teaching them things about their environment and shaping their behavior. And so, you know, I, I agree. And in as much as I don't think shelter temperament tests are very predictive, like yeah. we almost there might be some value as like a screen for potential problems. Mm-hmm. So if you see problems cropping up, behavior issues like fear or aggression or whatever cropping up early, I think that there could be some value in that. Like, ooh, this is a potential problem that we need to keep an eye on. But I mean, gosh, how many puppies do you know that come home? Um, you know, rocking and rolling and social and cool with everything. And then they hit their secondary fear period and that all turns on its head. Um, yeah. Where a temperament test at eight weeks might've said this puppy's going to be bomb proof, but so much can change. So. Which yeah. is the terrifying thing about bringing home a puppy. Yes. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is. I, and I, my initial goal was I wanted to bring home a one or a two or a one, two, three year old adult dog. Um, and that right. was part because with an adult dog, with a, you you know what you're getting a lot more than you do with a puppy, you know, and like I, you know, I did what I could. I'm doing what I can with this puppy where I'm looking at the parents. Uh, both parents are really stable, really lovely dogs that would be really easy to live with, which is kind of the first thing I want within a Border Collie. Um, I keep saying that I would rather have a Border Collie that's easy to live with than one who's a great worker, but horrible to work with. And so within the, you know, within the litter, um, I'm looking for kind of one of the higher energy, more confident, more problem solving, more drivey puppies. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I'm starting from a baseline of the parents being really easy to live with. And I think Danielle Spady, who's one of the, the ladies that we interviewed for our breeder podcast, one of the things she's said is that remember when you're buying a puppy that you, you know, assume that you're buying that puppy's 
parents and their siblings uh-huh. and their half siblings and their cousins. Um, uh-huh. And Hannah Brannigan always says like, when you're looking at a puppy or a dog, assume that everything is genetic. So what I was right. really trying to look for is not, you know, the puppy that I thought I could turn into something. It's like, which of these puppies based on what I'm looking at and the parents based on what I'm looking at, do I feel like they've got the genes to hack it at what I want? Um, and, you know, and it's terrifying. Like I, I like I was just talking to Danielle uh, yesterday where I was just like, I don't know. Am I doing the right thing? Am I looking at the right lines? Am I looking at the right litter? Like, how do I pick a puppy? Like, I don't know. Um yeah. So I'm really hoping it works out. And again, like my main goal is that even if this puppy doesn't work out with a working prospect, um, I'm at least setting myself up for success with a dog that will be a really nice pet. Um, So, yeah, it's it's kind of a wonder that like anybody ever successfully raises a puppy. I feel the same way about kids, by the way. Cause it's so hard. It's so hard. Like, yeah. And there's so many factors, you know, like I could bring this puppy home. She could, she or he could be awesome. And then we could like get Parvo from going for a walk and then we lose all of our socialization. uh, And the puppy has a bunch of horrible experiences with the vet and is flooded with hormones or, you know, we could get bowled over by, I, I mean, Barley and I got, not really. I mean, the, the dog was perfectly lovely, but we had a great day and come unexpectedly out of a house today off leash when we were on our morning walk. And like that could totally mm-hmm. freak a puppy out. And like, yep. and then you're done. I mean, like, oh my God, puppy it's horrifying. I have a client whose puppy just like literally jumped off the sofa wrong and broke her leg. Yeah. Oh and my she God. comes from a really good breeder who selects dogs for temperament and therapy and how like selects for therapy dogs, basically therapy and service dogs. So they want temperamentally and physically sound dogs it's a good line and but she just hit the floor just the wrong way and fortunately she's out of her really crucial period I think she's coming up on six months now but still like that's a six-week recovery where she's not going to get to play with other dogs or go outside or go on walk you know it's so hard and that was a freak accident freak accident parents did nothing wrong you know yeah yeah it's scary. Life is scary. Yeah. Yeah. So I say a lot that being a parent is signing on to just worry for the rest of your life. And I think that, um, that's puppy parenting counts too. Maybe not for the rest of your life, but for if, if you're lucky for the next 12, 12 to 15 years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like by the time the dog is like two, I'm hoping I'll like feel a little bit more like, okay, so this is who you are. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and and again, I mean, my first choice was to go was to adopt a a young adult shelter dog, um, and I just frankly couldn't find one that was what I was looking for that would get adopted to me. I had several yeah. really really nice prospects that I was really excited about bringing home that fell through because I don't have a yard or because I rent or because I was out of state or you know whatever. Um, so, gosh, adopting is hard. Adopting is really hard. I'm so sorry. That's such a bummer because you're such an awesome pet parent. Like I, I can't imagine looking at, you know, sort of your resume, so to speak and going, eh, I don't know if it's going to be enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'm still a little, I'm still a little hurt about one of them. (laughs) Like that dog. You looked amazing. Someone decides that you don't qualify to meet a dog's needs. I'm like, who would, (laughs) who in the world? possibly would 
So, oh, but oh, my um, as we're kind of wrapping this up is, and I will be promoting this more in the future, but um, as I am raising this puppy, I'm planning on doing kind of a spinoff podcast on puppy raising. Um, so we'll be promoting that more in the canine conversations feed and you guys will be sure to hear about that as it gets going. Um, we don't have anything in place yet, but just know it's going to be happening. So the puppy questions, keep them coming, keep excited, stay excited about it. But, um, it ultimately is going to end up in its own feed as its own thing, just so that people who are not in the midst of raising or looking for puppies don't have to listen to constant puppy content. Um, puppy stuff. Who wants to hear about puppies? Oh, gross. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you guys so much for listening today. We appreciate you being here with us and hanging in there for this slightly extra long episode. Yes. Um, I am Ursa Acri. I'm the co-owner of Canis Major Dog Training. We're located in Denver, Colorado, but we serve clients from anywhere remotely um, via private lessons for training or behavior modification. And since we're dropping a lot of, of, of new updates, um, we are getting ready to launch our online training academy that's going to include courses that you can take kind of at any time. Um, so if you're interested in that, you can go to our website and sign up for our newsletter for incoming updates on that. You can always find us online at www.penismajortraining.com. Kayla? Awesome. Yeah. And you guys can find me at journeydogtraining.com. I have all sorts of YouTube videos, um, courses on everything from loose leash walking to separation anxiety to um, the 30 things to teach your brand new um, adoptee dog. Um, all of that, you can just find it on journeydogtraining.com. And for just kind of casual, fun dog content, you can follow Barley and I on Instagram at Collie Without Borders. Awesome. Uh, we want to thank you guys for listening today. Um, if you have questions, comments, um, just want to chat, you can find us online at canineconvos.com. Uh, you can also sign up for our Patreon if you have other questions that you want us to discuss on the show. Um, that's patreon.com slash canineconvos. Yeah, thanks for listening, guys. 